First Peter chapter three. First Peter three. Let's read the first six verses together, please. First Peter chapter three, beginning the reading of God's word in verse one. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of the plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. We'll end our reading there and trust God for his blessing to be placed upon it for his name's sake. For a moment, please bow your heads with me. Let's ask the Lord for that help that we need. In Christ's name, our God, we come again to the throne. We believe that thou art the helper of the helpless. And when it comes, Lord, to do anything spiritual, whether it's preaching the word, praying, hearing the word, obeying the word, we, we have no strength in ourselves. Lord, all strength comes from thee. Thou art the fountainhead of all grace of all spiritual power. And in Jesus Christ's name, we pray that thou wilt give us the power, enabling the wisdom, the love, the instruction, the convictions that we need as we turn once again to this portion of thy word, which is God-breathed, infallible, unchanging, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're coming back to these first six verses from uh, chapter 3 of First Peter for another look at what I've called the duty and beauty of the Christian wife. The duty and beauty of the Christian wife. The Apostle Peter has been teaching these relatively new Christians how to live godly before an ungodly world. And in doing that, he has been expounding the close connection that exists in the Christian life between suffering and submission. A close connection between suffering and submission. Many months ago we read in chapter 1 about how the faith of these new believers, their faith in God was being tried through all kinds of fiery trials which brought 
great sorrow, heaviness into their lives. Because Peter knew firsthand, he knew firsthand the effect that even the fear of having to suffer could have on a believer's commitment to follow Christ. Remember what he did in denying Christ three times. It was the fear of what he would have to suffer if he owned him as Lord. Peter knew what it meant firsthand to feel that kind of fear. He shows them how submission to the will of God in times is vital during times of suffering that you might endure them and not act rationally. So when he says that they are to submit to the civil authorities, even when those civil authorities are wicked, cruel tyrants, and that Christian slaves are to submit to their heathen masters, even when they are froward, cruel, mean, beat them up, Peter points out that the basis for that submission to men is submission to God. It's God's will, and that always settles the matter. If it's God's will, case closed. That's all we need. That's what he wants. He's the real master. In chapter 3, Peter has turned to another area where submission to those in authority would be a common dilemma for many Christians. I'm referring, of course, to the case of a Christian wife being married to a husband who is unsaved. That would have been a very common experience in these early days of the New Testament church when the preaching of the gospel as it went into these pagan cities was meeting with great success. Inevitably, it would have resulted in many homes where one spouse would be converted to Christ and the other spouse would not. That would be all right if the spouse was the husband. In that culture, uh, in many ways in that culture, the wife was like a piece of property. She was just there to serve the man. So you can see why it would be especially difficult for a Christian wife who was married to a pagan husband to submit. Hard going. In each case, whether it was the emperors or the slaves or the pagan husband, the idea, the direction is the same each time. The Holy Spirit says, submit. Be in subjection. Obey them. Honor them. Don't rebel. Don't reject their authority. Don't set it aside. Don't neglect it. But submit. Be in subjection to your own husbands. And those husbands that Peter has especially in mind in verse 1 are those who obey not the word. And so they need to be one that is, won over to the kingdom of God. Peter was obviously addressing any attitude in the Christian wife which left her feeling that she didn't need to obey her husband because he wasn't a believer. He wasn't in the kingdom of God. I don't need to obey him. 
My master is Christ. So the apostle Peter wastes no time in checking that thinking, if it was there. But while this passage certainly has a particular point of application to Christian wives uh, who are married to unbelieving husbands, the, the, the obligations that wives have to their husbands is the same, whether or not they're saved. And that fact is borne out by all the other passages in the New Testament where the same obligations are set down, but they're set down in the context of a complete Christian marriage, not a mixed marriage. Same obligations. We've begun to look at the duty of the Christian wife toward her husband. That duty is, as I said last week, threefold, but we had only time last week to, to look at the first aspect of her obligation to her husband under God. That obligation is submission. The Christian wife is commanded to love her husband, and one of the most basic expressions of that love for him is that she lives in subjection to him. Love shows itself in submission. Rebellion indicates just the opposite. It's the lack of expressing love for the spouse. But she places herself, when, when, when she gets married, in that relationship, she places herself under his authority because that's the order of things. Right? That's the order that God has established. So to resist or refuse the authority of her husband, which, which the Lord himself has established in the home, is to resist and to refuse the authority of God. Surely, surely that, sh that shows that the key to understanding and fulfilling this duty as a Christian wife is to see it in that light, in the light of her relationship to the Lord. It's really what it's about. It's not as much about her relationship to her husband as her relationship to the Lord. But there's a second aspect of this duty that Peter calls for from Christian wives found in verse 2. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear... The second element of the duty of the Christian wife toward her husband is to be respect and purity. Respect and purity. Coupled with is not in the original text. You'll notice it's in italics. It was put there by the translators to help, they thought, explain what he was saying. A more literal rendering of the Greek text would be, while they observe your reverence and pure behavior. While they observe your reverence and pure behavior. Let's look. That's the order of the words in the text. It's the word reverence comes first, the word for that, and the chaste comes next. So first, this, this word fear, 
we get our word phobia from this fear. You've got a phobia. Phobos is the Greek term. A fear. Most often that word is used in the New Testament to refer to dread or terror. As when the angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds who were watching their flocks by night of the field. And the, the, the Luke says they were sore afraid. They were terrified. That's usually how that word is used in the New Testament. But in, in a number of other cases, it's not so much a reference to the, the, the feeling of dread or terror, but one of godly reverence and godly respect. Esteem. Acts 9.31, Luke says that the churches, this was after Paul was converted and went out of town for a while, the churches had rest and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord. That's the same word. They were walking in not the terror that there's going to be something bad happen to me, but it was an esteem of God, a fear of the Lord that was good and healthy and holy. A reverence for the Lord. They were walking in that. That was a lifestyle for them. It's not something they just had on Sundays. It was something that was day in and day out. It was a walk. In 1 Peter 2.18, servants be subject to your masters with all fear. That submission to the master is to be respectful because he is your master. You don't diss him, to take modern-day terminology. You don't disrespect him, even though he is froward. He doesn't have to earn your respect. You, you, do, do, do you see that one? He does not have to earn your respect. It'd be far better if he did makes it a whole lot easier to submit to someone that you respect because of how they live their life. But even if he doesn't earn your respect, the requirement is you fear him. You respect him. He's in a position of authority. And Peter is saying the same thing when it comes to the behavior of Christian wives toward their unbelieving husbands and to Christian wives toward their believing husbands. It's to be characterized by respect. Respect. Peter gives an Old Testament example of this respectful submission in verse 6. After pointing out that in, in former days, these holy women who trusted in the Lord, they were in subjection to their own husbands. And then he says, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You know, there's only one occurrence in the Old Testament where you find Sarah referring to Abraham as Lord. That can be the only cross-reference that Peter's referring to. As in Genesis chapter 18, verse 12. Genesis 18 has the uh, angels appearing to Abraham in his tent. 
remember, he's been promised by God back in chapter 15. He's going to give Father a great nation. All the families in the earth will be blessed through him. But the boy has not shown up. And now Sarah's an old woman. Well stricken in years, the text says. Abraham's an old man. Well beyond the time of being able to father children. And so she is sort of eavesdropping in to the conversation between the angel of the Lord and Abraham. And she hears the angel tell Abraham, the time of women, you know, roughly about nine months from now, your wife is going to give birth to a baby boy. She laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also. My Lord. She's talking to herself. You see, that was her habit. That's how she thought about her husband. She didn't say, After I am waxed old, shall I have also Abraham also being old? No. She said, my Lord. It shows, does it not, that this was not only Sarah's way of addressing her husband, but her attitude toward him. My Lord. The respect she had for him. Now, I'm not saying that Peter is telling Christian wives that they should start calling their husband Lord. Even though that was quite common in the Greco-Roman Empire. That was a common appellation that wives had for their husbands. That she called her husband Lord. That's, that's not what Peter is saying here. I am saying that Peter is using this Old Testament fact to illustrate the need for Christian wives to have the same respect, the same deference in how they behave toward their husbands. Respect begins with understanding something. Respect begins with understanding that he is your leader and that he has the right a right given to him by God to rule the home and to direct the affairs of the household. He has that right. It's a God-given right created from day one of the first marriage relationship. He's the head. He's the leader. And that respect is demonstrated in how you go about this matter of, of living in subjection to him. You see, there, there, there's submission, and then there is submission. You can submit to your husband's wishes and do what he asks, but do it with an attitude of disrespect. Begrudging, sulking, and angry submission is not really submission. It's just another form of rebellion against God's authority and disrespect of your husband. Because you don't like 
the decision, you don't like the direction, you don't like the will that the husband has laid down, uh, doesn't give any wife the authority to sulk and to render a very irritated or angry submission to the will of her husband. That is, that's not, that's not respect. It's, it's very disrespectful. I firmly believe that one of the things at the top of the list that husbands want from their wives is to be treated with respect. One of the things at the top of the list is to be treated with respect. God's put that in them. Deep, deep within them. I realize that wives have things at the top of their list they want from their husbands. But at present, we're dealing with the duties that God has placed upon the wife in a marriage relationship. When we come to verse 7, we'll see the duties that God has placed upon the husband regarding his wife. But right now, the emphasis of Peter is upon the Christian wife. And uh, again, if your initial response to hearing these truths, if you're a Christian wife... If your initial response to hearing these kinds of truths is to point out the faults of your husband and why he doesn't deserve your respect, then you've missed the point entirely. You've just missed it entirely. Remember that Peter is speaking specifically to Christian wives who are married to godless idol-worshipping husbands, many of whom would have been tyrants. And to the Christian women married to those husbands, the Holy Spirit says, let them see how you respect them. Let them see how you respect them. Peter also tells these Christian women to let their husbands see purity in their lives. Make sure they see purity in your life. The Greek word for chaste occurs only eight times in the New Testament, and it's never limited to moral chastity as we normally think of that term, someone, a woman being chaste. It would certainly include that, but it ranges well, well beyond that and includes a moral purity in all areas of life. You see, a wife, a wife may be very chaste when it comes to her, to her moral fidelity to her husband. She, she would never even think about cheating on him. But there may be other things in her behavior that, that mar her life and, and ends up giving a very poor testimony of her Christian faith to her husband. Oh, she's pure as the driven snow when it comes to that kind of sexual morality, but the purity isn't so pristine when it comes to other areas.
this isn't the first time that Peter has brought up this matter of having a pure testimony before others. If you'll just glance over at chapter 2, look at verse 12. He tells these Christians, having your conversation, again, that word is conduct or behavior, not your talk only, having your conduct honest or commendable among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, which they shall observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. You see, it's the purity that they're going to see in your life that's going to make a difference. It'll give you a, 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 an effectiveness, a, 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 an edge to your testimony if your behavior backs up your profession. Verse 15, after telling them to obey the governors, kings, emperors, whatever, for so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Your living purely before them will shut their mouths. They'll have nothing to say about you. And now he makes the same application when he comes to the Christian wife who happens to have an unbelieving husband. It will be by you. You want them to see a pure life being lived out before them. The truth of the matter is that there is far more power in a Christian's walk than in their talk. As far as Christian wives married to unbelieving husbands, isn't that the very truth that Peter's been driving home? So, so, so in verse 1 he says, you may have a husband who hasn't obeyed the word of the gospel. He's still lost. You're saved. You're in the kingdom, but he's, he's still lost. But they may, without the word, be won by the conversation, that is, by the conduct of the wives. That is a powerful statement. They heard the same message, perhaps by the same apostle being preached when he came to that city. She was saved through the hearing the preaching of the word. He wasn't. He heard the same message, and he remained in his lost state. Now, Peter says, that he might be won into the kingdom by the conduct of the wife. He, mean, he, he doesn't mean, of course, that her husband is, is going to be won to the Lord without the gospel, but it may not be by the preaching of the gospel, not by the gospel being heard verbally, it will be through his wife's life, her behavior before him that is marked by purity and respect that the Lord convinces him, I need what she has. I don't have it. I'm lost. He doesn't, he doesn't instruct the Christian wives. Now you start preaching to your husbands. No. You live a pure life 
and you let him see you res- that you respect him. And your behavior just might be the key, the thing the Lord uses to bring him to the end of himself and to Christ. In those cases, it's the preaching of the gospel through holy living that reaches his heart when no preacher could reach the heart. The same thing applies to the Christian marriage. There's nothing like seeing Christ lived out in the life of a wife by a husband that he's one to Christ. I don't mean that he's, he's saved. I'm talking about a believing husband and a believing wife, but there is a winsomeness, you see, a winsomeness. There's a, a drawing power to Jesus Christ when he sees Christ being lived out in the life of that one who shares everything with him. Everything. I, I, I don't mean that he's won to Christ in the sense that he's saved, but I mean that he's won over to the ways of Christ. So wanting to be like Christ when he sees his wife live out that kind of life day in and day out in the home. It has... It's, it's, it's the old, old story. They, you know, you see Jesus in someone. And if the Holy Spirit is in you, you want to be like Jesus. You want to be like him. There's a third element involved in the Christian wife's duty to her husband. She is to be in subjection to him. She is to be respectful and pure in her behavior. And thirdly, she is to pay the greatest attention to her inward beauty and not her outward beauty. She is to pay the greatest attention to her inward beauty and not her outward beauty. Let's read from verse 3 once again. Who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of the plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Peter is addressing in those verses a subject of a woman's life that is not only big in our day, but was big in that day as well. In fact, it's always been a major issue in the lives of most women that have ever walked the face of the earth. Beauty. Beauty. Deeply ingrained in the heart of most women, if not all, there is a desire to be attractive. 
to look beautiful in the eyes of men, and especially to the man they marry. And that means that women have, by and large, because of that deeply ingrained uh, element in their, in their whole psyche, they've placed a lot of attention on their clothes, on their jewelry, their hairstyle, and on the makeup. Can't begin to imagine how many billions upon billions of dollars have been spent because of that right there. That emphasis on outward beauty. The word adorning in verse 3, interesting word. The word is cosmos. Normally that word refers to the world. But you also know we get the word cosmetic from that word cosmos, cosmetic. Cosmetic is something on the outside that's applied. The particular Greek word there, as I said, it's usually referring to the world, but in this case, the older meaning of that word is ornament. Ornament. The adorning, the ornaments, the cosmetics are the things that a woman puts on to make her appear, at least in her own eyes, beautiful. I have to be honest when I see some of the ornamentation and the cosmetics that are being placed on today by women, I say that is anything but beautiful. Dear, I would think if I had the chance, you'd be far more beautiful if you took all that stuff off. But that's only a by the way. It's this preoccupation with the outward. That is the issue being dealt with by Peter. And he's writing to Christian wives. There's a necessity for this, right? Right? And there's, there's a reason he has to deal with this. It's always been the preoccupation. Peter's not saying, let me stress something, he's not saying that there's anything wrong with, uh, per se, uh, a woman braiding her hair or wearing gold or pearls. Because if that is what we are to understand, and that's how we're to interpret this passage, he's also against putting on of apparel. I mean, no, that's not true. Same would hold true for what Paul tells Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, that women should adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety. Not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array. You see, what Peter and Paul, for that matter, are opposing is the tendency of the woman to pay far more attention to what she looks like on the outside than what she looks like on the inside. Calvin said that when it comes to this outward adornment, 
that women, I quote him now, are much more curious and ambitious than they ought to be. Go fight with Calvin. Peter's not condemning the desire of any wife to look attractive to her husband. Nor is he forbidding a woman to wear any gold jewelry or pearls, or they can only wear clothes from Walmart or the Goodwill. That's not, that's not what he's saying. What the Holy Spirit is dealing with is, from the negative side of the issue, the vanity that's so often at the heart of all this attention and all this time and all this expense paid to the outward uh, appearance, while so little time and effort is spent on seeing that the life is adorned with the most important ornament, a meek and quiet spirit. That's what the text says. This is what Peter calls the hidden man or the hidden person of the heart, that, that, that inner self. Unlike, uh, unlike the outward appearance, which you all know eventually perishes, and it becomes, if you've ever seen sometimes, uh, on the, the web, they'll show you these famous people, what they looked like 30 years ago, what they look like now, what they look like when they're 20, what they look like when they're 70. And some of them I can't even recognize. I, I recognize when they were young, but I see them now at 70 or 80 or 90. Whew. You know what? The outward appearance is perishing. <laughs> I saw it in the mirror this morning. I used to be able to have a little bit of hair I could comb down like this in the front. And that's just plumb gone now. And I'm not going to get it back. And there's wrinkles showing up in my face. And, you know, there's ladies, there's no amount of makeup that's going to deal with the issue eventually. There's nothing more laughable than seeing an old wrinkled woman trying to make up like she's 17 years old. It is disastrous. It's a denial of the fact that this outward appearance, it is perishing. What I need to focus on, what I need to spend my time on, really, is to make sure I have this ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. That will never perish. That's a beauty that never fades away, no matter how old you get. And what is a meek and quiet spirit? What is that? A meek spirit is gentle. A meek spirit is submissive. A meek spirit is humble. That's quite the opposite of a spirit that is harsh and unsubmissive, domineering, proud, and stubborn. Those are adjectives that just don't jive with meekness. A quiet spirit is one that is calm and content. Calm and content. 
as opposed to a spirit that is loud, disturbing, and discontent. There's nothing at all attractive in a woman who doesn't seek to adorn herself with a meek and quiet spirit, especially in a marriage. Solomon has a few things to say about women who don't have meek and quiet spirits. Listen to, listen to a few statements by Solomon. Proverbs 27, verse 15, A continual dropping in a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. Contentious woman is not a woman who has a meek and quiet spirit. In Proverbs 25, verse 24, it is better to dwell in the corner of the housetop than with a brawling woman and in a wide house. He's saying, give me a little corner on the outside on the top of the house rather than being in a big house inside with a brawling, contentious woman. She doesn't have a meek and quiet spirit. It's always a fight. Always stubborn. Always digging the heels in. Nope, I'm not. It's not submission. Proverbs 21, 19. It is better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and an angry woman. There's nothing attractive about it. It doesn't attract. It repels. That's the issue he's getting at here. How beautiful, however, a woman is when she's adorned with this meek and quiet spirit. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I don't know, morning or evening message, but uh, an English, 19th century English preacher by the name of William Jay. You ever come across some of his works are worth laying hold of? He has drawn a, a very beautiful picture of a Christian wife who has adorned herself with this meek and quiet spirit. She is, she is as one, he writes, who can feel neglects and unkindnesses and yet retain her composure, who can calmly remonstrate and meekly reprove, who can yield and accommodate, who is not easily provoked and is easily entreated who would endure rather than complain and would rather suffer in secret than disturb others with her grief. That's the kind of wife that Peter says in the sight of God is of great price. That word means very precious, very valuable in the sight of God. Men may look at that woman on the outside and see an old bag of bones and wrinkles and gray hair and just maybe is the, 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 the teeth aren't all straight and, you know, just plain Jane. But it's how the Lord sees matters he's not really concerned about the cosmetics it's this ornament 
of a meek and quiet spirit that he notices and says, when I see that, I place great value on that. She may be a plain Jane, but if she spends the time, the energy making sure that she adorns her soul with a meek and quiet spirit, then she will have an attractiveness that far exceeds anything that lavish clothing, makeup, gold, and pearls, and hairdos could ever do. See, she just has a different perspective on life. What's really important to her is what's on the inside. In his final statement to Christian wives in verse 6, Peter encourages them to stay the course. No matter where it leads, no matter what it costs. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Don't let the fear of anyone or anything or any consequences turn you away from this path that I've just laid down. You just submit. You just live a pure life. You just respect your husband and give more attention to your soul than to your looks, and all will be well. All will be well. That is the duty and beauty of the Christian wife. Next up, what about the husband? May God write that word this morning on our souls for his name's sake. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's all pray. Father in heaven, as we close this time in thy word, we realize that what was true and what is true and needful for the Christian wife is just as needful for the Christian man to be more concerned about the inward adornment of the soul as opposed to outward appearances. Grant God to us all that grace to have the right priorities. What really matters is what we are on the inside, not how we appear on the outside. Give to us grace, Lord. Bring us back this evening to the house of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.